morning, church. So I'll be reading from 1 Kings verse, or chapter 3, verse 1 to 15. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to his instructions given to him by his father David, except for that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in his heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased with that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor asked for death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will give you what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever will be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in the obedience to me and keep my decrees and commandments as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realized that it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. Second reading, First Kings chapter 3, verse 16 to 28. It reads, Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, My lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. 
So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, No, the living one is my son. The dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, No, the dead one is yours. The living one is mine. And so they hug you before the king. The king said, This one says, My son is alive, and your son is dead. While that one said, No, your son is dead, and mine is alive. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, Cut the living child in two, and give half to one, and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut in two. Then the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the bandit the king had given, they hailed the king in hope because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you very much, Jock. Um, if I say that that reading was awesome, I think you'll know what I mean. If any of you don't, you can come and ask me about it afterwards. Anyway, please do keep uh, 1 Kings chapter 3 open in front of you. And uh, yeah, this is lovely, lovely stuff. So let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us understand his word. Well, our loving Heavenly Father, it is our joy to worship you together and to bring you the adoration of our hearts and the consecration of our lives. We thank you that you are our Father, that you know us through and through, and that your word is able first to find us, then to speak to us, and then to transform us. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, this passage will come alive to our hearts and our minds this morning. And so we say together, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you will have guessed, we are in a, a series on the life of Solomon. Uh, and I guess that most people today um, have probably heard about Solomon, even if they never go anywhere near a local church. 
And if they do know anything about him at all, they'll probably think of two things. Uh, for a start, they probably know that he was rich. Uh, in fact, Solomon was one of the richest men in the ancient world. Uh, one scholar says that in today's money, uh, his net worth was somewhere in excess of $2 trillion. I don't know how they work that out. I think I must ask Michael to check it out afterwards. But just to give you an idea of this man's awesome finances, won't you just turn over to chapter 4 and verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 21. There will be a little bit of page turning this morning, but I think you'll find it profitable. Verse 21, And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt, these countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. Solomon's daily provisions, so every day, were 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 of pasture-fed cattle and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks and choice fowl. For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the river, from Tipsar to Gaza, and had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. Now, the experts tell us that the amounts of food mentioned in verses 22 and 23 were sufficient to feed 20,000 people. So Solomon was an extremely wealthy man. And politically, he was very powerful. Verse 24, we're told that uh, during his lifetime there was peace on all sides, and I take it that means that other world leaders respected him. He was also a terrific architect. So uh, if you go to the Middle East today, you can still see the foundations of some of the marvelous cities that he built. Uh, they are all world heritage sites because the architecture is so very impressive. Uh, he was renowned for his military capability so we've just read, haven't we, that he had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses. But if you look at your Bible carefully, you'll see there's a footnote against verse 26. And at the bottom of the page, it says that he might not have had just 4,000, but 40,000 stalls for chariot horses. And uh, some scholars think that's the correct reading. Either way... Solomon was clearly super rich and super powerful. But above all, Solomon was a wise man. That is the thing that he's most celebrated for in the Bible, and it's what we're thinking about this morning. But what exactly was this wisdom that Solomon had? Because actually, it's not what most people think. In the Bible, wisdom is not the same as intellect. Uh, it's not talking about someone with an off-the-scale IQ. 
Interestingly, the Bible links Solomon's wisdom with his wealth. Uh, The fact that he was so successful and amassed a vast fortune is linked to the fact that he was wise. But of course, wisdom in the Bible means a great deal more than being good at making money. So for the next few minutes, we're going to look at the wisdom of Solomon, and I want us to see how it connects to the wisdom of God and to the wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an executive summary of Solomon's wisdom at the end of chapter 4. You might like to just have that open in front of you. Because I absolutely love some of the comparisons which the author of 1 Kings puts before us to show us how wise Solomon was. Verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Calcol, and Dada, the sons of Mahol. Now, I love this because, of course, we don't know very much about these men. I did a bit of digging around, and Ethan the Ezraite wrote Psalm 89, but we don't know anything about him other than that. Uh, There is evidence elsewhere in the Bible that suggests that the sons of Mahol or Mahol might have been musicians, but we can't be sure. But the point is, as we read this, the text is inviting us to think, well, who are the cleverest people that I know? Uh, Maybe Garry Kasparov, perhaps. He's the most famous chess player of all time. So he's pretty bright. Well, Solomon would have had him checkmate in five moves. Or maybe Stephen Hawking, the astrophysicist and author of the book, A Brief History of Time. Well, Solomon would have taken all of his theories to the next level. So you see, we read verse 31, and you think of the cleverest people you've ever heard of. Solomon's cleverer than all of them. Then we're told about his writing in verse 32. Have a look at verse 32. Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. And again, I love that. I love the precision of it. I mean, there's no rounding up to make it sound more impressive. You know, he's not saying, well, he wrote about a thousand songs, give or take. No, it's a thousand and five, no more and no less. But that's not all, verse 33. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. So it seems that Solomon was David Attenborough on steroids. He was an incredibly wise man. And from the text, what I want to do is draw your attention to six important characteristics of this amazing wisdom that Solomon had. 
Number one, this kind of wisdom is extremely valuable. Uh, to be wise is more valuable than having great riches. Wisdom is very precious, and Solomon knew that. He, he discovered that very early in his reign, and we know that because of the way that he answered God when God appeared to him in a dream and asked him a question. Chapter 3, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Now think about that. Uh, if God appeared to you in a dream tonight, what would you ask for? Well, Solomon's answer is in verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Verse 10, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you've not asked for both riches and honour, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal amongst kings. So Solomon, what would you like? And Solomon replies, I'd like wisdom. And God says, because you've asked for wisdom, you can have that. And I'm going to give you enormous wealth as a bonus. And God is saying wisdom was the right thing to ask for. Because it's more precious more precious than anything else you could have. Now think about that. You know, if you were given the choice, would you rather have a million rand in your bank account tomorrow morning or a bit more wisdom? And God thinks the right answer is the second option. Wisdom is very valuable indeed. Second, number two, wisdom, true wisdom, is for the benefit of of other people. Verse 9. Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. So Solomon's not saying, please give me a massive IQ so that everybody's extremely impressed with me. No, he asks for wisdom in order to be able to govern the people well. And won't you notice that good government isn't just about being clever. It's not about, you know, doing a great job managing the economy. Because in the Bible, wisdom is first and foremost a moral category. It's a moral quality. It involves knowing the difference between good and evil. Verse 9, give your servant a discerning heart to distinguish between right and wrong. And of course, 1 Kings gives us a marvellous example 
uh, with these two women fighting over the child. Solomon says, bring me a sword. Cut the living child in two. You can have half each. We read that and it sounds brutal. We sort of recoil from it, don't we? But it's actually a brilliant answer. Because immediately the true mother pleads for her child's life. Please, my Lord, give her, the living baby, don't kill him. And notice there, will you, the reaction of the people. You know, did they say, you know, what a clever king, he solved a really tricky problem. No, they don't say that. Verse 28. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. So you see, wisdom is not just about being clever. It's about knowing the difference between right and wrong and how to apply that to everyday practical problems. Which means, of course, you won't find the truly wise person uh, permanently locked away in the library with his books. No, the truly wise person is seeking to serve other people and trying to make right moral judgments. Okay, so are you with me so far? Wisdom is valuable, it's unselfish, it's moral, it's practical. And next, wisdom is also a great blessing. Just turn to chapter 4, verse 20, will you? Chapter 4, verse 20. And as we read verse 20, ask yourself, how many countries in the world today would be able to say this? Chapter 4, verse 20. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and notice this phrase, they were happy. Now, I understand that happiness is one of the measures that economists use these days to assess how well a country is doing. And uh, you might be interested to know that the richest countries in the world are nearly always the most miserable. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I understand that in the last survey they did that the happiest country in the world today is Finland. Uh, I have no idea what the secret is in Finland. I find that rather odd because it's dark there for three quarters of the year and Russia is their next-door neighbour, so I find that rather mysterious. But never mind. In our passage, the secret of happiness is that the people are being governed by a king who knows the difference between right and wrong and who can therefore administer justice. And uh, we're told in the text that with that comes security, peace, safety, and happiness. So it is a tremendous blessing to be governed by a king who is truly wise. Notice in verse 34 of chapter 4 that this kind of wisdom is very unusual 
Verse 34, men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who'd heard of his wisdom. Well, they wouldn't have bothered, would they, if there were wise people at home? These days, wisdom is, I think, generally not the sort of thing that makes the news headlines. But quite clearly, Solomon's wisdom was breaking news. So much so that when we get to 1 Kings chapter 10, a very famous queen comes to visit. I'd like us to look at that. Flip over, please, to chapter 10, 1 Kings. This is a marvellous example of what we've just been reading about in chapter 4. Chapter 10, verse 1. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Well, um, I don't know, but I strongly suspect that the queen of Sheba was no pushover. And uh, she says to Solomon, well, I've heard you're a wise man, but I'm not actually convinced So I've designed the hardest exam paper anybody has ever had to sit. It's harder than any of the exams at GWC, even the exams set by the professor. And uh, I'm going to be invigilating uh, to make sure that you don't take out your mobile phone and look up the answers on Google. And in order to get Solomon to take her seriously, verse 2... She arrives in Jerusalem with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones. I guess if you want to impress the richest man in the world, it's got to be a pretty big present, hasn't it? So she came to Solomon and talked with him, we're told, about all that she had on her mind. Verse 3, Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. Actually, a literal translation of that last phrase would be, it took her breath away. And I haven't checked this out myself, but I'm told that that is the first time that phrase was ever used in literature. We continue verse 6. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I didn't believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. And then very interestingly, we get a summary of everything we've been talking about so far in chapters 3 and 4. So if your mind has wandered away to Sunday lunch, come back to me now. Verse 8. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. 
Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. So friends, I hope you're getting a sense that it is a very great thing to be wise. It's valuable. God thought it more valuable than if Solomon had asked for great riches. So what would you choose if God asked you the question, what would you like me to do for you? Wisdom was the right answer. Wisdom not to be self-serving, but to serve others, so that I may govern this great people, says Solomon, and to govern them not just with brilliant economic insight, but with right moral judgment, to know the difference between good and evil, especially in practical matters, settling disputes and arguments and so on. And that kind of wisdom in your king is a very great blessing indeed. It's so unusual that people come from all over the world to experience it for themselves. But the last thing that we learn about wisdom is the most important. And it is that true wisdom comes from God. That should be obvious. But you see, it wasn't that Solomon spent hours and hours studying or that he had super bright parents and he'd somehow picked up their genes. It was that God asked him a question. What would you like? He said, please, may I have some wisdom? And God gave it to him. It was God's gift. Notice that it wasn't simply God's gift to him. It was a gift, actually, for everyone in the kingdom. And the verse that captures it best is chapter 10, verse 9. It's a lovely verse, just please do look at it. Chapter 10, verse 9, where the Queen of Sheba says to Solomon, Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Now listen to this. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he's made you king. Now think about that. Because the Lord loved Israel, he made you king. So, so giving Solomon wisdom wasn't just a gift for Solomon. It was a gift for everyone who lived in the country. And in fact, it was a sign that God really must have loved those people to give them a king like that. Everyone's happy. There's peace. Everyone is ruled justly. So there's no corruption. And there's no moral compromise. Now the thing is, my friends, I don't suppose that any of us here this morning can imagine what that would be like. Now, I'm not there making a negative comment about our president in this country or the government. No, none of us have any conception of a government without corruption, do we? 
A government in which wisdom is not uh, self-centered, where no politician is concerned mainly for their own interests or stealing as much money as possible, we can't actually imagine a king or a president whose first concern is to do what's morally right. We can't imagine it, and Israel could barely imagine it either, because it was a very, very rare thing in their own history. Sadly, of course, it was temporary even in Solomon's time, because in case you don't know, this is actually, this this section of 1 Kings is the high point in Israel's history in the Old Testament. Because in just a few chapters, everything begins to unravel. Uh, In the next generation, the civil war. And after that, Israel is ruled by king after king, and most of them do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. There are kings who serve themselves, kings who are greedy for personal gain, kings who are willing to make all kinds of moral compromises to further their own interests. In fact, very much like what we see on the news today. Much more familiar. Now, good rulers don't come around very often. Maybe just once in your lifetime, if you're lucky. Sometimes only once in the history of an entire nation. But even Solomon, even Solomon, eventually loses his way. And we'll see why in a couple of weeks' time. But this kind of wisdom is God-given. It's beautiful. I want it. I want a government like this. And I think most people want integrity and they want moral goodness. The Bible says this kind of wisdom is very, very rare. But it comes from God and it's found permanently and securely only in the Lord Jesus. And this is fascinating. You see, the way that the Bible is written is to remind us that because God is in charge of all history, he plans all of history to teach us the lessons of the gospel. I wonder if you'd thought about that. So even 900 years before the Lord Jesus comes into the world, God is already giving us, through Solomon, a taste of what Jesus will be like. So, a tiny bit before this, in 2 Samuel, uh, you may remember that God promised David that his son would sit on his throne forever. And so, uh, ever since David, we've been looking out for a son who's going to be the eternal king. Solomon is quite naturally our first hope because he's one of David's sons. Uh, He starts well, And uh, we're thinking, well, perhaps he's going to be the king who rules forever, but turns out not to be. So then we we start following the line as we read through the Bible. Maybe it will be the, the son of the son of David, or the son of the son of the son of David. And we start recording David's family tree. The Jewish people, of course, were brilliant at this. 
they meticulously traced the descendants of David to see who this king would be. And eventually, 900 years after Solomon, along comes Jesus. And it's highly significant that his family tree is recorded for us in the very first chapter of the New Testament. And in that great chapter, the Gospel writer Matthew traces the human ancestry of Jesus all the way back to Solomon and back to David. Jesus arrives on the scene. He's called Christ, which means king. And interestingly, the New Testament says that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge for your notes. That is Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. But that doesn't simply mean that Jesus was clever. And it's not just that Jesus was rich, although today, as the king of all creation, he's infinitely more prosperous than Solomon ever was. Because his inheritance is all the nations. Solomon could never say that. But it does mean, friends, that Jesus has something that is precious that he uses in the service of others. He has right moral judgment. He knows the difference between good and evil. And he proposes to govern his kingdom along those lines. So instead of corruption, he rules with justice. His people enjoy peace and security. And just this tiny glimpse of the what life would have been like under Solomon, it makes me think, I want to live under a king like that. And so along comes Jesus and says, well, I am the king. I'm the son of David you've been waiting for. Would you like to be in my kingdom? And the wise answer to that question is, yes, please. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, the, the Queen of Sheba said, Praise be to the Lord your God, who's delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he's made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Well, our loving Heavenly Father, we can copy that prayer this morning and say that it must be because you love us that you've given us King Jesus in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, this picture of Solomon's kingdom attracts us to life in the kingdom of King Jesus. So we pray that you would help us to follow him and trust in him for his name's sake.